we've been, um, we've had an exciting morning so far, haven't we? Some of us are a lot wetter than we originally intended to be, but it's a beautiful thing. What an amazing morning. Baptism is such a significant step, declaring that you give up your right to self-determination, to let God determine your steps, to let his Holy Spirit empower you and lead you and what it looks like to follow him. We live our lives that way, so from the outside, it looks like people would be like, what is going on? Joe there has like completely lost his mind. He is no longer in charge of his own life. He's let his God make all of his decisions. And from the outside, it seems like the craziest thing in the world. But when Jesus is in your heart, you know that it's absolutely the only way that it will work. Otherwise, there's always a war battling on, on the inside whose will is going to win. So we are so proud of our baptismal candidates today for doing, uh, taking that step of faith and obedience in Christ. Such a beautiful one. I remember back at the beginning when I, uh, Pastor Barry spoke the first two messages that we had on parables. And uh, then uh, well, while uh, my family and I were on vacation, and I remember coming back, and I, one of the things I said was that um, uh, I was coming back and having to share one of the hardest parables. Uh, I take it back. There's few of them that are easy. Most of them are, are pretty challenging as far, as far as what they mean for the reader. Um, but this week, it's one of the toughest ones, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a parable of the sheep and the goats. And for some of you, you know that one, and you, you may have heard it before. It's often a familiar one that uh, whether people are well-churched or, or not, they, they've maybe heard an idea of sheep and goats and something along those lines. And so to, to dive into it, what we want to do is like we've been doing all along in all of them, we want to do our legwork, make sure we understand the context of what's being shared. Why is Jesus saying what he's saying? What's going on around it that he would say these things. Otherwise, it'd be like walking into a room, hearing something say one line, and you trying to discover the context of why they said that. And it could lead you down so many different trails, unless you actually heard what the whole conversation was. So let's do that. Jesus has entered Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds had celebrated. He had cleared the temple of thieves. We've gone over this before because this is in that line of uh, parables that we've talked about. But he clears the temple because it has thieves in it. They were changing money and and making sure that people had to get the right money uh, in order to be able to worship God and to give their offerings at the temple. And and it was a a scam that they were running. And so he clears them out and says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And then after that, uh, we shared the parable of the wedding feast. And we worked through that one. Uh, Then he had a harsh correction for the Pharisees and the teachers of the temple. He goes on and and has a bunch of what we could say. He says, woe to you who are. And he talks to the Pharisees and the leaders. And he he gives them a ringing through about how they're leading people in the wrong direction. They're not leading them to Christ and to salvation, but instead they're they're leading them farther away. And then uh, here he is. He's a week away from his death. In now resurrection. That's, that's where we are on the timeline of what's going on. He, like I said, he's entered Jerusalem. He, it's a week away. 
He's, he's upset all the, the leaders there. He starts talking to his disciples about how he's going to die. He has to die. He keeps mentioning that to them, that he's about to die. And he's speaking more freely of that nature, his mission in that nature. And it's causing havoc because he's not hiding his mission anymore. He hid the true nature of his mission for a while so that it would give him time to share his message that the kingdom is here. And the more he articulated it clearly, what that meant for the kingdom to be here, he knew the more people would be upset with what he had to say and want to kill him for it. But the time had come for him to, to share that and for that moment to come. He's become laser-focused on it. Imagine that you knew what was about to happen. You knew what they were about to do to you, but you fiercely marched towards it. You lovingly served humanity as it rejects you. Neither you nor I could bear that weight. And that's why we have baptism. Because we didn't have to bear that weight. And as he and his disciples were leaving the temple area after he chastises everybody and, 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 and um, speaks to cl- with clarity about what true leadership and what true uh, following, following God looks like, as they're leaving, they can see the temple amongst the city of Jerusalem. And as they're leaving, his disciples point out its majestic structure. They look at it and they're like, wow, Jesus, this temple, it's so, it's so amazing. This house of worship that was meant for you and your father, God, isn't it absolutely incredible, this, this thing that's been erected for worshiping you? But Jesus tells them that that temple is going to be destroyed. That within a couple days, or within a short time, the temple is going to be destroyed, leveled, not one stone standing on top of each other. And they're aghast, obviously, that to hear that such a beautiful structure would be destroyed. And they have a three-part question that they ask him that sets Jesus on a conversation that we call, uh, that some like theologians would call the... Um, um, I think it's the Olivet Discourse is what they call it. They like fancy names for stuff when they're theologians. But the reason why they call that the Olivet Discourse is because he had a talk in an olive grove. And that's all that means. Olivet, olive, discourse, talk. That's all he did. He talked in an olive grove. And so that's what happens here. He's in this olive grove. He's talking with them. And this is, this is what they basically ask him. They ask Uh, when the temple would be destroyed, and what the signs of Jesus returning at the end of the age would be. What would it look like? He said, not a stone is going to be standing on top of each other. And they're like, what? Jesus, when is this going to happen? What is it going to look like at the end of the age, at the apocalypse? What's going to happen? And and what is it going to, what time on earth, when will our time on earth be done? And how will we know? And when are we going to go to heaven? They ask all these questions to him because, you know, he's talking very apocalyptically, right? I'm going to die. It's all going to be over. You're going to have to go on without me, but don't worry. I'm going to send this mysterious blanket for you, this comforter, and it's going to be okay, right? He's talking all strange and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Jesus starts to speak these things. Uh, and when addressing him, he comes and he says this. And this is how he starts that whole big section that he talks about. He says this. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Nor the Son, meaning him. But only the Father. Right there. Angels don't know. He doesn't know. God the Father has kept this to himself. But when it's time to return. 
when he says to his son, son, go get him, bring him home. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Uh, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other one left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill and one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. That's how he opens this big discourse in the Mount of Olives that he had. It's going to come. It's going to be like the days of Noah. It's going to come like a thief in the night. You're not even going to know what's happening until it's already done. And we'd be wise to note something here about how Jesus speaks about this. Jesus' focus on the days of Noah wasn't about how evil it was. He doesn't mention one thing about he, how evil society had become and why the flood was needed. He just says it will be like then in the fact that they were just going about their business. They were marrying, meaning let's get together, let's be married, let's have a family, let's plan for the future. They were going to work, meaning they were saving up for what they needed tomorrow. They were, they were doing the work needed so they would have the, the funds or the, the food they needed for the next day or for their future. There was nothing about what they were doing that indicated the end was about to come. That is his focus, not necessarily the evil of their age. He's focused on what the mindset of the community was at that time. We would be wise to do the same. His comments also reflect on how people disappear. One stays and the other one goes. The preparedness of people splits families friends, neighborhoods. They're both working. They're both doing the same thing. But one who believes, one who is ready will be gone and the other one not. No one knows when a thief strikes. And Jesus similarly will come. Nothing will seem out of the ordinary. Don't expect some blood moon or blacked out sun or some apocalyptic sign that you know, I can't miss it, it's about to happen. It's going to happen when we're just about our everyday business. When you're making your coffee in the morning, getting ready to go about your regular daily grind. That's when the Lord comes. That's when it'll be for our culture. And then Jesus goes into a series of parables speaking on, on what waiting should look like. He says, hey, it's going to come. You don't know when, you don't know how, but it's going to come. And that means as you're waiting for it to come, how do you wait? What does waiting look like? How do we prepare ourselves for that moment that we don't know is coming? It could come before we end this service, or it could come two centuries from now. How do we live in the tension of not knowing which it is? That's a very important question for us to understand. And he goes through a series of three parables to help us understand. Each parable building a little bit more and more on that whole idea of what it looks like to wait. And how to be prepared for when he comes back. 
And the parable we're looking for, looking at today, is the third parable, the final parable in that series of what it looks like when Jesus returns. It's the culmination of them, the parable of the sheep and the goats, when all are gathered before God for judgment. And again, this is a parable. It's not a step-by-step instruction or account of how it will happen. He says the end will look like this. The kingdom of heaven comes and will happen like this. We don't all magically turn into sheep and goats and then stand before God as a farmer and have him separate us from side to side and put us in pens. That's not what's going to happen. Because if you want to take it literally, you must go all the way. Instead, we need to make sure we consider this, the parable that it is. This is like that. So let's read this together. And today, instead of having me read it, we're going to watch it being read descriptively for us today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. God, as we look at this parable, as we study it and to learn what it has for us today, understand how we can be prepared. God, may you lead us and guide us in truth. May we see with eyes to hear and ears to hear, our eyes to see and ears to hear your word. 
May we have the will and the submission to obey it and put it into action in our lives. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, I have to admit, when we look at this parable, it kind of feels like an ancient version of Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen that show? Where a boss or a CEO of a company will, will go undercover. They'll put on their wig and fake beard or do whatever, put on an accent uh, and uh, go undercover and, and see if they can see how their company is doing, see how they're doing, get a pulse on whether or not the ethos of that company has made it all the way down to the people who are working it out daily, the daily grind. Not up in the CEO's office, but in whatever branch whether it's a worldwide company or whatever it is, they want to figure out whether or not they're staying true to the mission all the way through. This parable kind of reminds me of that in some way. The parable, though, is just, it's just the grand finale of the show, right? It doesn't show us him actually being there and, and having those interactions and, you know, hearing the grumpy employee talk about how the CEO knows nothing about what's going on in the company and if they were in charge, they'd make all these changes and all these things like that. We miss all that part. We don't get that. All we get to do is see the grand finale of when everything is revealed. Jesus enters the picture in all his glory. All his glory. He comes and arrives. This isn't Jesus wearing a carpenter's outfit. This isn't the Jesus that people in the Bible would say, isn't that Mary's son? Isn't that just the carpenter from Nazareth? Why is he speaking like this? How is he telling us how to follow God? This isn't the way that Jesus is appearing in front of them. All of his glory. Jesus, totally unrefined, totally there before them in all the glory of heaven. And not only is it just the glory of heaven, but it's all of his angels that are with him. All of them. No one's left at the gate guarding it, making sure no one's getting into heaven that doesn't belong there or anything. Nothing like that. Every single angel is with him as he enters the room that he's standing there. It's amazing. It's huge, right? This isn't Rabbi Jesus, Teacher Jesus, Carpenter Jesus, none of those. It's Jesus, King Jesus, that CEO without all the other stuff on coming in and everybody's like, oh, I'm here with the big boss. I'm not just here with somebody else. I'm here with the big boss. And to be honest, that's usually the Jesus that we want to see right now, isn't it? We want Jesus on the throne. That's who we want to worship. We sing these songs, you know, you are exalted. You are higher than above anything else. You're sitting on your throne. Ah, King Jesus, you rock. We want to live that out because we need him on the throne. We want him on the throne of our lives and of, of everything. And we're like, yes, Jesus in this moment. This is amazing. He's so strong and he's so mighty. But this, though, is the end game. This is where Jesus is sitting at the end of it all, having this moment. This is not the Jesus. This is not the Jesus that goes, that those being judged are about to realize they're being scored by. The Jesus that was looking for them to serve him when he was naked and poor and lonely and in prison. There's the dichotomy of how Jesus is living out right now and the Jesus we'll see at the end of time. And so he separates the sheep and the goats. This would be a common thing. This isn't making any uh, 
disparaging ideas about goats and sheep and goats are evil and sheep are good. Very common for, for shepherds at that time to have their, their herds intermingle. Sheep and the, and the goats were together all the time. They, they, would, they would often herd together. And then when they would bring them in, they would obviously have the goats go to one side and the sheep go to the other because the sheep needed to be sheared and the goats, most likely milking goats, would need to be milked. So this was a common thing for a farmer to do, is to separate sheep and the goats. So up until this point, the disciples are tracking along fine. They've got this. They're like, yeah, I got that, I got that. Yep, sheep and goats, here we are. Separate the one from the side, figure out what that means. That's what's happening. This is where it gets interesting. Why were they separated? The sheep had apparently seen Jesus sick, naked, a stranger, thirsty, or imprisoned, and helped him. Because of this, they're invited into their inheritance prepared for them. Challenges, they have no recollection of ever helping Jesus in this way. They never saw him naked. They never saw him sick, hungry, thirsty, imprisoned. They never saw him in any of those conditions. And seeing King Jesus on his throne is probably not the time to take credit for something that you didn't actually do. I don't know if it's some gotcha moment where he's like, hey, all the things you did for me, and you're like, yeah. And he's like, no, you didn't. What are you doing? You don't want it to be that moment. So they own up to it, and they're like, we, we don't remember seeing you do in any of those things. We don't remember helping you. When did we do that for you, Jesus? And how does he respond? He answers, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then the king turns to those on his left, the goats, and he condemns them to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Before I go any farther and the notes were prepared, when you think of that eternal fire and the judgment there, we're not going to go deep into it today and what it means and it's, uh, what that looks like. But what we can do is take for certain that what Jesus meant was eternal punishment, that there was punishment for their actions or, in this case, inaction. They protest and that they, too, never saw Jesus thirsty or hungry or naked or imprisoned or sick. They never saw him that way. How can they be judged for this when they didn't actually see him in those conditions? And he had to reply similarly, but in the negative. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. It would appear then that their acceptance or rejection is based off whether they, I was going to say, is that me? But no. they, their, their acceptance or rejection is based off whether they helped the least of these brothers or sisters of the king. Whether they knew it or not, Jesus identifies with them to the point that he's hinging eternity on how they're treated. Jesus so identifies with these brothers and sisters that he says, how you treat them is how you treat me. And if you treat them bad, you're not coming in. Party's closed to you. That's a bold move. That's, that's a harsh move. A challenge is laid for these disciples listening to work that out, right? For them, Jesus is still standing right there in front of them like we, we saw in the, the portrayal of it. He's sitting there in the mountain of olives giving them this talk. And he's saying, this is how it's going to play out. They're trying to figure that out. He hasn't left yet. For you and I, we're clearly in the waiting period for his return. There, he hasn't even left yet. But for us, we're focused on living properly, waiting for his imminent or delayed return. 
So how we behave will determine how we're sorted. So who are the least of these brothers and sisters of King Jesus? Because that's what it all hinges on. Who are these brothers and sisters of mine that he says? Who did he identify with? In the last, last half century, during the rise of social justice in our culture and cultures around the world, many theologians and preachers and churches have taught that it is truly the poor, the refugee, the imprisoned in our culture and in the world. And in some regards, Jesus does identify with those people. He has and would literally experience all of those things for himself. One might think, even with his opening message of his ministry, that it's a confirmation where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. One would see that and go like, well, of course, there it is right there. Solved. The poor, the blind, the prisoners, the oppressed, that's who Jesus came for. That's who he's identifying with. But is that who Jesus says he identifies with? It sounds simple, but it leaves us with other questions. Questions like this. Well, what happens to salvation by faith? If it's just take care of the poor and you're in, then do you need to believe in Jesus at all? Can you just help the poor and then you're guaranteed a spot in? It raises so many questions that are incongruent with the rest of what Jesus taught about how he is the door. There is no way to salvation but through him. So how do we balance those two things out? Can it be that it's just serve the poor and you're, and you're good? Or is it through Jesus? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or wait, or is it anyone who helps the poor will be saved? Taking care of the poor regardless of your relationship of, uh, with the king, does not hold true with what Jesus teaches elsewhere. And if it's to be trusted, then it must be, it must not contradict. It must be congruent with the rest of what Jesus teaches. And so who are they then? Who does Jesus identify with so deeply that he's willing to bet eternity on it? Remember my, na- my analogy of the undercover boss. That should give you a clue. See, Jesus identifies with those who belong to him. If you're here, a few weeks ago, we mentioned Jesus saying in Matthew 12, he says, who is my brother? Who is my sister? Who is my mother? Because his family is at the door knocking, going, Jesus, come on out. We want to, like, set your brain straight. His actual, like, blood brother and sister are out there saying those things. And what does he say? Who is my brother, my mother, my sister? Who is my family? What does he say? Those who do the will of the Father. Jesus identifies with those who say, not my will be done, but yours be done. We see in Matthew 10, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes Who sent me? Oh, we're back. I don't know what happened there. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to the little ones, who is my disciple? Truly, I tell you, 
that person will certainly not lose their reward. We see in Matthew 5 that Jesus identifies with the poor of spirit, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, and the persecuted because of his name. Jesus said they were his followers and that they would be one, all of us together, but also with him. Jesus wants to identify with us. When Saul, who would become Paul, and he would write half of the New Testament for us, long before he does that, though, he's actually persecuting Christians. He's actually seeing this new way of living called the way because they were following Jesus because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So originally, Christianity was named after that. They were called followers of the way. And he's persecuting them. He's saying, no, 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 no. You need to conform to Israel's faith and doctrine. He's going so far as to see them killed. And as he's doing so, he has an encounter with Jesus on the road. And as he does, Jesus, in, a, in a probably similarly, all of his glory, a bright light that shines down, knocks him off his, his horse or whatever he was riding. And he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Not that it, he doesn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting my followers? He says, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with them. So now if we track Matthew, because that's the book we're in, we're, we're reading in Matthew this parable. Matthew uses the term brothers and sisters. And every time he uses it, it always points to believers. For us to abandon this passage is unfaithful to the text. For us to go, well, brothers and sisters means anybody who is poor. For us to do so abandons how Matthew continues to repeatedly refer to brothers and sisters. It also mirrors scripture found elsewhere. If we look at John 13, 34 to 35, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Or 1 John uh, 3.17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a, re a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And in Acts 2, 42 to 47, we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, being transformed by Jesus forces us, calls us to a radical humility, a radical self-denial to serve others. Truly, it's out of obligation. But this obligation is an obligation to love each other as ourselves. How we act towards each other has eternal consequences. If we claim to love Jesus but can't solve the issues between us, we fight and we squabble and we have enmity between us, We don't like it when somebody sits in our seat or we don't like it when somebody doesn't respond to something we've said or done for them in a way that we would expect them to to do so. And we allow that to tear us apart. We allow us to say, well, I don't, nope, 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 I don't like these people. When we allow that to happen in our hearts, we live in jeopardy of being separated on the left. Now, does this mean we should neglect the poor? Are they an afterthought? By no means, by no means. What I'm saying is that simply this parable doesn't apply to that. Let me read you some passages that do apply to that. Jeremiah 22, 15 to 16. He said, he did what was right and just. He's talking about one of the kings of Israel. So all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well for him. Is that not what it means to know me? To know God means to take care of the poor and the needy. Religion that our God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him his deed. Or Deuteronomy 15.11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Or Isaiah 58.10, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. Doing good for the poor and disenfranchised in our community is absolutely something we need to do. It needs to be an outflow and an outpouring of who we are as a community, 100%. But that's just not what this parable is about. Did you know that almost every modern form of charity has Christian roots, has its Christian fingerprints all over it? Hospitals became more standardized in the fourth century through churches. Schools in the second century became more uh, organized through churches. Orphanages were started in the fourth century in churches. The outflow of their lifestyle was to serve each other and then expand that to the community at large. Do you know the first food bank was started in a church? Our mobile mission is not going anywhere. We're not 
lowering the level of how we serve our community at all. I hope that we can raise how much we help our community. Jesus is delaying his return specifically so that something like the mobile mission, like us on mission every day in our lives, we can see as many as possible return to him so that we can point them to Jesus. That's the whole reason he is delaying. That's the very reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's because he says, I want more sheep. I want more people to know that I love them, I care for them, and they can be saved through me. Jesus is going undercover boss on all of us. He's checking out how his body is doing. He's wanting to see us as healthy as possible before he shows up as King Jesus with all his angels. And it's too late. There's no going back. There's no, let me just see if I can just give online one last time before it happens. It's too late. And here's the great thing. While he's an undercover boss, showing up as the poor and the, the, the homeless and, and, and those imprisoned, while he's showing up as our brothers and sisters in Christ as those things, he's already told us he's doing it. There's no need for us to know that he's an undercover boss. We serve each other because we love each other. Because when you look in each other's face, what do we do? We see somebody else who has the same heart and spirit in them of Christ. When we look into their eyes, we know that we can see Christ in their eyes. Christ plays in 10,000 faces. Why? Because they have all been transformed into his likeness. And so when we look at each other, we see Christ in each other. And so we serve Christ. How did the disciples do that? They sat around a table and made Jesus wash their feet. And then they're like, what did we just do? Why did we let King Jesus wash our feet? He says, if you want to be first among me, You need to be last. We need to serve each other with that same disregard for our own well-being. And it's not to empty our bank accounts and and empty everything and and drive ourselves to poverty in order to help somebody else's, but it's for us as a community to do as healthy as possible. Share, care, look after each other. Not just hope that somebody else is going to do it. See, right now, in this moment, Jesus is identifying with his brothers and sisters who need love expressed tangibly. That's where Jesus is in this moment.